All right, so here we go. So Jesus is King, week three. So before we get into the word, let's just go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the privilege of preaching your word. Lord, it is an honor that um, you would allow any of us to do anything for you. Lord, because we are weak and we are frail, but Lord, you, you, you still use us, and we're so thankful for that. And I've got to ask that you'd help me to speak clearly, to speak with boldness and, and compassion. And Lord, I pray that in all of it you would be glorified. I ask that you would strengthen your people here today through the power of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So God is the one who instituted the marriage covenant. God's the one who instituted the marriage covenant. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see the first marriage covenant is established. You see that God created Adam, and, and God said it was not good that man would be alone. And all the men say, amen to that one. That it's not good for man to be alone. When man is alone, man, man, man does things he probably shouldn't be doing, right? Uh, but man, God designed man to have a helpmate. God designed man uh, to have a spouse, to have a wife. And so God established the first marriage covenant in Genesis chapter 2. And, and after, after all of creation was done, he looked back. And each day of creation, building up to man and woman being made, he said that it was good, it was good, it was good. And then when he made man and woman, and he made their union, he said it was very good. It was very good. And so God instituted the first marriage. And covenant is important. Covenant is, is, is what God has established. And that was what he established we see in Genesis chapter 2. But then Jesus affirmed the marriage covenant between one man and one woman. And he affirms it in Matthew chapter 19. Listen to what Jesus says about marriage. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so this is what a marriage covenant is. A marriage covenant is whenever a man and a woman come together, and in a divine mystery, they become one flesh. How does that happen? Except through God. That is a divine mystery that a man and a woman can come together and they are no longer two, Jesus says. They are one flesh. And so whenever in marriage, in a marriage, whenever that one flesh covenant is broken, in marriage when a one flesh covenant is broken, it is like a ripping apart of what God has divinely brought together. When we are unfaithful in our marriage, when a spouse, a husband or a wife is unfaithful in their marriage, it is, like, it is like a forcing apart of a one flesh union. It's like trying to rip it apart. And the pain and the, and the betrayal and the hurt that happens whenever there is a, a, a betrayal, whenever someone breaks the covenant, when someone doesn't hold up the end of their bargain for the covenant, whenever, whenever somebody that, when, when the couple comes together and they make that covenant before God and before witnesses, before family and friends, and they decide at a later date to break that covenant, to be unfaithful, there is great pain, there is great betrayal, there is great heartache, and it runs deep. Have you experienced that? Maybe you've experienced it personally. Maybe you've experienced it, you've seen it in your family. Maybe, maybe in, in your family, 
You come from a family that was a divorced family. Maybe that's your, your legacy and your family history, divorce after divorce, covenant broken after covenant broken, over and over again. And that it tends to be the pattern we see in our culture today. And I'm illustrating and starting with this because I want you to understand that a covenant, the covenant of marriage is a picture of our covenant with God. It's, it's such a beautiful picture. And whenever the covenant is broken, in marriage, it brings great harm and great pain. This is why when we are unfaithful to our marriage covenant, it is like a ripping apart of what God has joined together. And God was the one who established covenant. He, he's the one who established the, the idea of covenant. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 12 when God made covenant with Abraham? He was the one who came up with the first covenant. He made covenant with man. He established a covenant with Abraham. And he said to Abraham in Genesis 12 that through your seed, through your line, through your heritage, through your children, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And is that not what happened? What happened with the nation of Israel? It says, as you read through the narrative of the nation of Israel, it says that they grew and they grew and they multiplied and they multiplied and they got so big that when they were in the land of Egypt, what happened? What did Pharaoh look around and say? They're getting so big, and they're growing so much. We need to oppress them, lest they think, lest they look around and say, hey, we're greater than them, and try to overtake us. So Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies and the nation, they, they oppressed and put into slavery the children of Israel. This is the covenant people of God, and they became oppressed. But what did, what, what did God do? God raised up a deliverer. And who was the deliverer that God raised up? Moses. Moses was the deliverer. Now Moses was a reluctant one, right? He was a reluctant servant. God went to Moses and said, Moses, Moses, my people need to be set free and you're going to be the spokesman. And what did Moses say? God, there's no way. I can't do that. I can't be the spokesman for you because I'm slow with speech. I can't really speak clearly. And God said, okay, I'm I'm going to give you somebody to help you. Aaron's going to come. He's going to help you and support you. And so eventually Moses gets there. He runs from the call for a while, but eventually he's there. He goes, and God uses Moses to be the spokesman, to speak to Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh to let God's covenant people go. God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel that, that through them, through their line, through their, through their family, through their families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And ultimately, that would culminate in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming through the nation of Israel. And so, the nation of Israel gets delivered. They get set free. And, we've, and if most of us have heard that story, the, it culminates in the great Red Sea parting where the nation of Israel, Pharaoh, finally lets the people go. And they're, and they're in, in front of the Red Sea and Moses holds up his staff and the Red Sea parts and, and they're walking on dry land across the Red Sea and then Pharaoh decides all of a sudden, bad idea. I'm angry at what God did and I don't like these people and I'm going after them and so he goes after them. And, we'll, and what happens? All the waters came on top of the Egyptian army and killed them all and their chariots were, were, were buried under the water and, and God delivered the people of Israel and then God reestablishes <coughs> a covenant with the people of God. After he delivered them, he, is, he established it with, with, with Abraham in 
Genesis chapter 12. And then look at Exodus. This is after the people of God have been delivered. God makes a covenant with his people again. Listen to Exodus 19. On the third noon moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, <coughs> on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from, Re- from Ref- Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all, all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of God. God establishes, reestablishes a covenant with the people of Israel. He delivered them and establishes the covenant with them. He says, if you will obey me, if you will follow me, you, you, will, be, you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be like a kingdom of priests before me. But what is the story of the nation of Israel? Were they covenant breakers? What have we seen through the nation of Israel? And we've looked at it last week through the prophet Micah. How he rebuked the leaders of Israel. Because throughout the history of the nation of Israel, they they continually went after false gods. They were covenant breakers. Just like we talked about earlier when we were talking about the institution of marriage. Marriage is a covenant. But it's the same picture of a covenant between us and God, between God's people and himself and the nation of Israel. Their story is that they constantly went after idols. They constantly, as they connected with foreign nations and foreign people and they intermarried with nations that did not worship the one true God, they would adopt their standards and their morality and they would worship their false idols. They would, and, and, and Israel would create their own gods. They would create golden calves and bow down before them and they would worship trees and images and they would do everything they could to not honor God. And then God would bring judgment. God would raise up prophets to speak to them and call them back, remind them of who he is. People have a tendency that when they are in times of plenty and blessings, that they forget the giver of the blessings. And that's what the nation of Israel was in the pattern of doing. They're in covenant with God. They're in relationship with God because he was their God and, and they were his people. God had made a covenant with them, but, but in times of plenty, in times of deliverance, in times of, where, where we see God's faithfulness all around us, we're no different than the children of Israel. Sometimes we like to look at them in the Old Testament and we, we tell their stories and it's a story of, of tragedy and blessing and tragedy and blessing and we think, oh man, they, they are so bad. Those people are terrible. I would never do that, God, ever. We're the same. When we're in seasons of blessing, we get relaxed and we get, we get complacent and we tend to forget the giver of the blessings. I quoted Charles Spurgeon last week because I have a Charles Spurgeon study Bible. It's a great study Bible. I'm going to quote him again because it's just such a great quote here about Israel's idolatry. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. It is a sad sin when we take God's mercies and use them in rebellion against him. Just think of it. The gifts Jehovah gave to these people, they presented in sacrifice to Baal. Some people in comfortable circumstances spend their wealth for sin. They have wealth and strength and they use them in service of their own evil passions. And that's the history of humanity, not just the nation of Israel. It's the history of 
humanity. We are covenant breakers by nature. Apart from Christ, we are covenant breakers. And this was the story of Israel over and over again. And, and as we've seen, we looked at the prophet Micah, as I said earlier. And, and, and today, we're going to look at the prophet Hosea. We're going to look at the prophet Hosea. God raises up prophets like Hosea, and they speak to the nation of Israel. These prophets speak and declare that God's judgment is coming. They, they rebuke them for their rebellion. And, and we're going to look at Hosea and an overview of Hosea. And I, I just want to read in Hosea chapter 4, listen to the rebuke from the prophet. Hosea spoke to the nation of Israel for over 40 years. And he, he spoke during the King Jeroboam II's reign. And, and eventually... He's speaking to the reality that, that in 722 BC, Assyria was going to overtake the northern kingdom of Israel. It, it was coming. And he's speaking to that reality, trying to warn God's people. And listen to the warning in Hosea chapter 4. We're going to read a few verses here. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There is violence everywhere, one murder after another. That is why your land is mourning and everyone is wasting away. Even the wild animals, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea are disappearing. Isn't that stunning? They ask a piece of wood for advice. That means they're, they're, they're making gods out of things that are created They ask a piece of wood for advice. They pray to created things. They think a stick can tell them the future. Longing after idols has made them foolish. They have played the prostitute, serving other gods and deserting their God. They offer sacrifices to idols on the mountaintops. They go up into the hills to burn incense. In the pleasant shades of oaks, poplars, and terebinth trees, they were tree huggers. And that's supposed to be a joke. A joke in the middle of, of rebuke here. That's a bad joke. That is why your daughters turn to prostitution. And your daughter-in-laws commit adultery. But why should I punish them for their prostitution and adultery? Listen to this. For your men. For your men are doing the same thing. What is he, what's the prophet saying here? The men are accountable. Why? Because we are called to lead Men. Accountability starts with us first in every area of life, in the marriage, in the family with our kids, in the church, on the jobs. We are responsible. For your men are doing the same thing, sinning with whores and shrine prostitutes. Oh, foolish people, you refuse to understand, so you will be destroyed. Wow. Listen to that rebuke from Hosea, the prophet. This is coming from God. Hosea, the prophet, speaking to the nation of Israel, said, it's coming. You will be destroyed. You are not worshiping me. You're creating false gods. You're worshiping the God of Baal. You're worshiping sexual pleasure. You're worshiping possessions. The prophet Hosea is similar to the other Old Testament prophets in that he spoke for God. But what's unique about the prophet Hosea is this, and this is where we're going we're gonna to see a little bit of a different a, a, a picture here with Hosea that is unique. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah experienced some strange things that God asked him to do. Some of the other prophets in the Old Testament did as well. This tops the list. 
God asked Hosea to do something to demonstrate visibly for the nation to see. You see the rebuke in chapter 4, but before the rebuke in chapter 4 and all the other rebukes throughout the 14 chapters, before those rebukes, he asked Hosea to do something visibly that the nation of Israel could see to show them what it was they were doing to God, how they were relating to God. And this is what God asked Hosea to do. He said, Hosea, I want you to get married. And I want you to marry a woman named Gomer. And that woman, Gomer, is going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to become a prostitute. She's going to go out on you and be unfaithful. She's going to break the marriage covenant. But I want you to marry her. He wanted, God wanted, not just a vocal declaration of what they were doing in breaking the marriage covenant between them and God, breaking the covenant between them and God. He wanted them to visit. He wanted Hosea to feel and to see. And he wanted the nation to feel and to see what it was like, what they were actually doing. And listen to the call in Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the lord all right stop right there how many of you would say yes lord your servant is listening men yeah man think about that i don't understand it all sometimes you know i was talking to my wife about it this morning so many questions but god is god and when god says thus saith the lord you obey. He obeyed. He went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. In the most shocking way, God tells Hosea to marry a woman who will be unfaithful, to demonstrate what Israel's idolatry is like. Their idolatry was like adultery. Their idolatry, worshiping false gods, worshiping things that replace God, that's what idolatry is. That idolatry was like a breaking of a marriage covenant. Their idolatry was like adultery. And God was demonstrating that to Hosea. And God was demonstrating that to the nation of Israel through the life of Hosea. Both God and Hosea were loving husbands of unfaithful wives. Both God and Hosea were loving husbands of unfaithful wives. And you know what happens with Gomer is Gomer eventually, she gives her life to her sexual sin. She gives over her life. She, she, she goes her own way. And eventually she ends up in prostitution. Eventually she ends up in sex slavery. She goes all the way. She goes all the way. Her life gets, becomes controlled by it. And you know, that's what happens with sin if we're not careful. In any area of our life, if we live in unrepentant sin in, in our life, if we refuse to obey the Lord and we, re, we refuse to walk in ways that honor God, I want to tell you that if you continue in sin here today, there are going to be earthly consequences to those sins. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, we, we will experience earthly consequences to our disobedience to the Lord. And, and, Gomer experiences it to, to a great level, to, to a level that she probably never imagined she would be in. She was in sex slavery. She was a commodity that was meant to be bought and sold. And he had, so she had left Hosea. She had given herself to prostitution. She's in the sex slavery business. <coughs> and then God tells Hosea something again. First he tells her to marry her. And after she leaves, God says, go back and buy her. Listen to Hosea chapter 3. 
And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Listen, listen to that. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a, and a left, a left check. I should practice these words of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. There's Gomer, an unfaithful wife, a covenant breaker. She's fallen so far in her promised duty that she's become a prostitute. She becomes enslaved. She's become a commodity to be bought and sold and used for someone's pleasure. There she is. And more than likely, if she's in that position, she's in that position of being bought or sold on a slave block. She's not dressed fully. She's been abused, neglected, taken advantage of, and there she is. And God tells Hosea, go and buy her back. Go back and love her again. This is the lowest of the low. This is the lowest of the, of the low. Gomer was at the lowest of the low that we can be in our life. And this is the picture that God is wanting Hosea and Israel to see. This is what God's people had become. You guys get it? This is what he wanted them to see. He wanted Hosea to see. He wanted the nation of Israel to see. This is what you have become. This is what your idolatry has led you to. This is what you've become. They were enslaved to their passions. They were enslaved to their idolatrous ways. They had abandoned their covenant with God and had fallen further than they could have ever imagined. And God looks at Hosea and says to him, God tells Hosea, love her again. Love her again. Buy her out of her slavery to sin. Love her again. Love her again. Demonstrate to my people, listen, demonstrate to my people that this is how much I love them. At the lowest of the lowest place that they could be, this is a demonstration of God's love. God will love us again. God will call us again. So I don't know where you are or where you've been. Maybe you're in that place right now. You feel like I've been at the lowest of lowest places in my life right now. There's no way that God could love me. Scripture tells us through the prophet Hosea that it is at that moment, that point, that God loves you. He will pursue you just as he used Hosea to pursue Gomer, to love her again. That is a picture of God's love for us. And it is what God wanted the nation of Israel to see through the life of Hosea. He says, I love you. Yeah, you've gone out on me. You've broken covenant with me. You've abandoned my ways. And you're creating gods through trees. And bowing down and seeking wisdom for the future from a piece of wood. But I love you. And I've pursued you. And I want you to return to me. Return to me. Amen? It's the love of God. And Hosea continues on for several more chapters with the theme of sin and judgment and redeeming love. That's the picture of Hosea. It's sin and judgment, but ultimately redeeming love. And this is what Hosea did for Gomer. He redeemed her. He paid the highest price and he redeemed her and he bought her back 
to himself. And this is what the theme of Hosea is. It's sin, judgment, and redeeming love. And then we get to chapter 11 of Hosea. Chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to read it to you. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So at this point, you might be thinking, you said at the beginning of your sermon that this is your Jesus is King Christmas sermon. But we've just been hearing about adultery and, and idolatry. So you might be thinking, I thought this was a, a Christmas message. I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad you were thinking that. Were you thinking that? What is going on here? You know, Hosea 11.1, 1, when it says, when Israel was a child, I, I loved him and I brought my son out of Israel. I brought my son out of Egypt. You know what that means, right? It's pointing back to, literally pointing back to what I started my message with. Back to Egypt. God loved his people when they were in oppression and slavery in Egypt. He loved them. And he went and he raised up a deliverer in Moses and sent Moses to redeem them, to deliver them, to, to set them free. That's what it means. Hosea 11, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved them. It's that pursuing love. God didn't leave them in oppression and slavery. He pursued them and loved them and redeemed them and delivered them. He called them out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. That's what it means. So when the nation of Israel would have heard this from Hosea, that's what they would have thought of. That's exactly what they would have thought of. And so the next question would be, well, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked that question again. Because Matthew chapter 2 shows us how this prophetic language spoken by the prophet Hosea, how it has such implications for our lives. Listen to Matthew chapter 2. Now, when they, Mary and Joseph, had departed, behold, an angel, this is after Jesus had been born, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Listen to this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. So what, what, does that, what does that mean? Because there was a literal fulfillment previously to the prophecy in Hosea. It meant the nation of Israel being delivered from Egyptian slavery in the past. So what does it mean when Matthew says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that, that, that Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to Egypt, so that means they have to come out of Egypt eventually. If you're going to go to, they come out. What does that mean? How is this fulfilling what the prophet spoke? Because it it's a different type of prophecy. When we looked at Micah, we talked about where Jesus would be born. He spoke about where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. He literally fulfilled that in the future and was born there. When, when the Old Testament speaks about Jesus being born of a virgin, he literally fulfilled that in the future. This type of prophetic language is what is called typology. It's called type. That Jesus fulfilled in the New Testament Something that was spoken of in the Old Testament. And so we can look into the Old Testament when the New Testament shows us the picture and we can see a type of Christ. And so this is what this fulfillment is. That Jesus is that fulfillment. He is 
He is the type of Israel. Not the idolatrous Israel, but just as Israel was, were, were the children of God, Jesus is the Son of God. And so out of Egypt, Jesus was called, just as the nation of Israel was called out of Egypt. And so this is what I want us to do here as we, as we move on in this message. This is because it has brought, because the Holy Spirit inspired the gospel writer to bring this picture, to make Jesus a type of this picture in Hosea. Now it has all kind of New Testament implications. It has all kind of New Testament pictures for us. It has gospel implications for us. So what do we learn from the prophetic letter of Hosea written 700 years before the birth of Christ? What do we see in our lives as the gospel has, has meaning for us through these stories, through Hosea and through Jesus being brought to Egypt and ultimately out of Egypt? Here's what, here's what we learn. The first thing we learn is this, is that without Christ, we are idol worshipers like Israel. Without Christ, we are idol worshipers like Israel. We are no different than idolatrous Israel when we're left to ourselves. We're no different. Without God's grace in our life, we will follow the idols of our heart. So, so what, what are idols? What, what is idolatry? And here's my simple definition of idolatry or what idols are. Idols are anything we prioritize more than God. Anything that we prioritize more than God. That's what an idol is. So that could be anything. It could be a husband. It could be a wife. It could be a child. It could be a job. It could be money, it could be possessions, it could be a career, it could be a church, a pastorate, it could be if I put anything in front of God and it becomes more important to God in my life, it becomes an idol. So what is God calling us to in our life? He's calling us to a God-first life. How do we fight against idolatry in our life, in all, every area of our life? He's calling us to a God-first life. Life and to not be like the nation of Israel and to welcome idols in our life. What is it? What does a God first life looks like? It, it looks like in our marriage that God is first. That before I can be a godly husband, before I can love my wife as I'm called to love her, I got to put God first in my life. I got to seek Him every day in my life so I can love my wife as Christ loved the church. It means that in my life as a father, I got to put God first in my life. And I want to love my kids with everything I have within me. But they don't need me to abandon my priorities of God and my relationship with Christ just so I can spend time with them to have a good relationship with them. What they need is that I would put God first in my life so that through that relationship, then I can be the best father that they possibly need. And here's what happens. We get it backwards so many times in our life where we're tempted to. We think, well, I got to spend time with my kids. I got to be with them i got to be at all the things and all the places. And slowly, those things and those places creep away at our godly priorities in our life. And we think, we're, well, well, I'm just spending time with my kids. But you know what your kids need more than you being there at the games and at the events and at the things? They need all of that. Yes, they do. But they need you to love the Lord first. They need you to set for them an example of what it means to be in relationship with Christ. Because at the end of the day, what is more important? What is the most important thing in this life? It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we can pursue all of these earthly things in this life. But if God is not first, then those things can become idols, just like the nation of Israel. 
We're, we are no different. This is, what, this is what we learned. This is the gospel implication of the story of, Ho, of Hosea. That without Christ, we are idol worshipers like Israel. Secondly, without Christ, we are Gomer, running after lovers and breaking covenant. So without Christ, we are like Israel, following after idols. But without Christ, we're also like Gomer. And you say, well, I would never be like Gomer. I would never stoop to that level. And and maybe you would never stoop to that level physically and sexually. But in a real sense, if we're not careful, without God's grace, we are like Gomer. Chasing after other passions that take priority over God. You know, I, I, I love many things in my life. You know, and, and I do seek to keep my priorities in line. And I, want, I, tr- I strive through all of God's grace working within me to put God first. And for all of that to trickle down in my life. But I'm tempted. I, I, I'm tempted in my life to love sports more than other things in my life. I, I really do. I love watching football. I love the LSU Tigers and the New Orleans Saints. My favorite sport is golf. I love golf when Masters Week comes in April. Oh, that's the hardest sermon prep week ever. <laughs> it is so hard. Because with technology now, I can watch every hole on my laptop while it's going on. And I can't sermon prep because I just love to watch it. We're all tempted. We all have those things in our life that, that our heart will gravitate towards. That we will, we will replace our affection and our love for the Lord for other things. And I'm telling you, I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. There's nothing inherently bad with loving golf, liking golf, loving golf and, and football and whatever it is that you like or love. But when those things squeeze out a passion for the Lord, then it is running after other lovers. Trying to find fulfillment in something outside of Christ. And, and you know, as well as I know, that there is no pleasure this side of heaven. There is no amount of possessions and no experience that we can have in this life that is greater than our love and our relationship with Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater. Because look, I mean, you want proof of it. Just watch Hollywood culture. Look at them. Look at the pain. Look at the brokenness. And now look, we, we look at them and we think, oh, I want to be like them because they've got the big house and they've got the money and they've got the influence and they can, they can get master's tickets before I can because they know a lot of people. I was listening to Tim Tebow the other day and uh, he was preaching and he's becoming a pretty good preacher. And I was listening to him. He's preaching the gospel but in his introduction, he was talking about him and his wife going. He was wanting to take her to see um, a Broadway play because he was in New York doing some TV stuff. And he's, he's engaged to be married. And so he said he was, at, he was during the day doing his shows and he's texting with his agent to get tickets to Hamilton. It was Hamilton. And so I'm thinking as he's preaching, I'm like, man, you are totally disconnecting from everybody in your audience because ain't none of us got an agent, Right? Right? That's what millionaire people have. They have agents that they can text during TV programs. Hey, can you get me tickets to Hamilton so I can uh, go with my wife? And I guarantee you the agent calls the Broadway place and says, Hey, Tim Tebow and his fiance want to come and watch, uh, um, watch your show tonight. Absolutely. Where do they want to sit? They probably got them for free. 
So we can look at that world. We can look at all the things that are around us. And if we're not careful, that's what can end up happening. We can become like Gomer in that sense that, that we just give ourselves over to the pursuit of pleasures in place of God. Without Christ, we are Gomer running after lovers and breaking covenant. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11. This is the Apostle Paul speaking of the church at Corinth. He says this. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Isn't that true? Isn't that where it happens? Deception, thoughts, deceptions led astray from pure devotion to Christ. Without Christ, we run after lovers and we break covenant. And lastly, what do we learn from this story about Christ coming out of Egypt, going to Egypt, coming out of Egypt and and Israel and Hosea? What do we learn here? That without Christ, we are enslaved and in need of redemption we are enslaved and in need of redemption and this is the gospel this is it this is the picture of the gospel that we were enslaved and you know i think sometimes we like to categorize sins and the sins that gomer literally walked in the ones that she literally walked in the sexual sins we like to put them at another level Another category of worse sins, or maybe it's drug addiction or alcohol addiction, or maybe whatever sins we like to categorize, and we like to think that, that, yeah, they're really enslaved. They're the ones that are really enslaved and in bondage. But you know, the picture is, is that all of us are enslaved to sin. Even those of us who have not committed those big sins, as we like to categorize them, all of us, apart from Christ, the Bible says we are enemies of the cross. Because we are born in rebellion. We are born with a tendency towards sin. We are born in a position, listen, this is a strong word here, but we're born in a position of hatred towards God. That's our tendency. That's where we move towards. Without Christ, that's where we go to. So whether it's sexual sin, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's lying, pornography, whether it's covetousness, whether it's gossip, Whatever the sin is, whatever category you want to put them all in, it really doesn't matter the categories. It's that they're all sin. And the book of Romans says that we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that the glory of God is a standard of holy perfection. It's a standard of holy perfection that, that, that all of us, we've fallen short of that holy standard of perfection. Now, we all are enslaved to our sinful nature. The Bible also says that we are, not only are we, by nature, children of wrath, but it says, also in Corinthians, that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded our minds. But before Christ, before we were born again, not only were we enslaved to our sinful nature, but Satan had blinded our eyes to see the glorious light of the gospel. We were blinded by our sin. We were all enslaved. Without Christ, we are are enslaved and in need of redemption. That's what Ephesians 2 says. And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, it's the gospel in two words, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love. This is the love of Hosea. This is the redeeming love because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, when we were enslaved and in bondage through our trespasses, he made us alive together. He bought us back. He redeemed us in Christ, with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. Amen, it's redeeming love. That's who we were. So those are my three simple points. Without Christ, we follow after idols. Without, without Christ, we follow after idols. Without Christ, we run after lovers. And without Christ, we are enslaved and in need of redemption. And I, I want to conclude this morning by reading, by reading from Hosea again. Listen to the love of God, the compassion of God. This is Hosea 11, and then we'll look at Hosea 14. Listen to this. God has brought rebuke to the nation of Israel. And listen to what he says to them. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. This is a city in the northern kingdom of Israel. This is, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms. Think of a father with a child. That's, that's the picture here. A loving father with a child. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? Do you see this contrast here? He's speaking judgment because of their sin. But listen to the heart of God. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like like Zebion? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Listen to Hosea 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say these words to him. Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. This is what God is saying. Say this to me. That we're not going to run to idols anymore. We're not going to run to the work of our hands and say that this is our God. In you the orphan finds mercy. And this here is the final exhortation, verse 9 of chapter 14. The final exhortation from the prophet Hosea. In light of everything we just heard this morning, listen to the final exhortation. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. So whoever is wise, remember the message of Hosea. That God loves the unlovable. That God loves the broken. That God loves the ones that blow it and make mistakes. Remember the message of Hosea. 
Remember the message of Hosea that we are like Israel and we are like Gomer. And that we do run off to idols and that we do replace We do replace our relationship with God with other lovers. And we have a tendency to break covenant. But God is a God of mercy today, tomorrow, and forever. And he doesn't give up hope in us. Isn't that good news? He doesn't give up hope in us. So whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them. So I don't know where you are today and what you've done and what idols you've been chasing and what lovers you've been chasing after. And where I don't know exactly, but you do. And God, God does. And God is not up there saying that because you've done this, you can't come to me anymore. He's saying, turn. Will you turn? Will you transfer the message of Hosea? Yes, judgment will come, but you can turn. yes. Consequences will come, but you can turn. Would you turn? Would you turn today? Would you abandon where you've been? God loves you and he's calling you today. Even believers here today, those who are in relationship, are in relationship with the Lord, turn. Turn to him. Turn to him. Pastor Jonathan Parnell, he writes for desiringgod.org. And I read a whole article by him about the story of Hosea. And he had a concluding paragraph that I think is so powerful. And it's a great way for us to conclude our thoughts here this morning. I think it sums up, he's summing up the message of Hosea. Listen to his words. Whatever wreck your life might be, however nightmarish your circumstances seem, Jesus is ready to embrace you. His righteousness is ready to clothe you. The mighty wave of his mercy is growing higher and higher, soon to crash over your soul if you would just turn, if you would but seek him. Would you? Would you today? Even in the midst of your mess, would you turn to him? Amen. Stand your feet with me this morning. Would you turn today? This is how I want to end today. I believe I got some musicians back here. That was a last minute thing I did to y'all. I'm sorry. I want us to end singing about amazing grace. While they were singing that, I thought, oh, that was a great way to end our message. Let's just sing about God's amazing grace. And if you need to come down, you need to repent and turn to the Lord, come. If you're a believer or non-believer, wherever you are, believer or non-believer, whatever... You know, God knows your heart. You know what's been going on in your relationship with the Lord. Or if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, come. Come down and let's sing of the amazing grace of God today. And we will be dismissed.